Hello, you're about to listen to a program from Shout Digital Radio, broadcast online on Friday 20th of December 2019. The programs were introduced by BBC Radio 4 newsreader and continuity announcer Charles Carroll. This is Shout Digital Radio at one o'clock. We're broadcasting today for one day only, Friday the 20th of December 2019, between the hours of 10am and 4pm. If you're just tuning in now, don't worry about what you've missed. You can listen again to this morning's programmes on our website, shoutcommunications.co.uk slash resources slash shout hyphen digital. And we'll be hosting the programmes in podcast form on iTunes and SoundCloud, so you'll have plenty of opportunity to catch up. Next up, he's joined by Good Morning Britain's Jonathan Swain to discuss his career so far, all things breakfast TV, and the question on everyone's lips... What is it like working with Piers Morgan? Jonathan, welcome along. Um, just sort of introduce yourself and uh, and your title so people people know a bit more about yourself. Sure, yes. Yeah. So I'm a senior correspondent, I think is my official title, uh, for Good Morning Britain. Uh, it's a breakfast show on ITV from um, 6 o'clock in the morning until 8.30, Monday to Friday, uh, on ITV. And before that, I was sort of uh, working at GMTV and then Daybreak and various radio stations and media organisations in the past. And can you just probably start off really by telling us a bit about your current role and day-to-day kind of workings of it? Sure. What I love about the job is that every day is very different. Being a a correspondent, obviously reacting to the news agenda of the day, and that is incredibly busy, as we all know. Um, And so therefore, it involves a lot of foreign travel, uh, a lot of domestic sort of travel as well, uh, responding to all the big news stories, really, that are happening at home uh, and abroad. So that's the best thing. So I have like a bag packed uh, by the door. I have two or three passports that I you know, have in my back pocket uh, because you you know always go into different countries uh, at different times. So, um, yeah, you've always just got to be on the front foot, really, um, and ready to sort of respond as and when. Talk to us a bit about your sort of early early life. How did you get into this? Actually, my dad was a radio commentator uh, for local radio and I used to sit along the commentary box with him watching Coventry City, a glamorous football club in the Midlands. Uh, and I used to, and at half-time, used to go down to the press box and used to see sort of free chocolate there and sort of, uh, you know, free teas and coffees. And as a 10-year-old boy, I thought that was a brilliant thing because, you know, you get sort of free drinks and snacks and you get to watch football matches as well. Uh, so I thought I quite fancied doing a bit of this. Um, and that's what sort of really turned me on towards sort of journalism really and actually from the age of 10 I made it my mission to sort of to, to be a journalist and to try and get on you know into TV journalism and uh, and here I am still doing it which is great. From there what kind of fueled the hunger why were you particularly interested in becoming a, a journalist? I think I was watching sort of TV as, a, as a, uh, a young boy and just thinking how exciting it all looked from these reporters going to these faraway remote locations uh, you know shirt, shirt sleeves rolled up in Africa or you know, somewhere kind of glamorous or and, and where the action's happening and everybody's sitting around watching the news, you know, at 10 o'clock at night. And I thought, actually, that's a really important job. You know, my parents here and family are hanging on to this reporter's every word. Um, and I thought, that, that's, a, that's a cool job. Um, and actually, it's turned out to be pretty cool. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've seen a lot of the world and, uh, and you know, I'm grateful for that. What was your kind of route in? How, how did you sort of start out? Well, anyone listening to this who does want to go into journalism or has thought about 
uh, as possible career. It's just hard work in terms of just being persistent. In terms, of, I used to write letters. Remember, we used to write letters back in the day. You'd probably go you'd, too young for that, but we used to have to write letters. Um, and you'd get so many rejections back from people. But people, at least, at least they took the time to say, you know, thanks very much indeed, but you don't have the experience at the moment. I probably was only 14 at the time and you know, applying to be the boss of BBC. But I was getting nice letters back saying... Uh, but keep in touch and I would keep in touch and uh, what I also did as well I wrote lots of uh, newspaper articles for free newspapers in the area uh, and at 14, 15 they didn't really know my age to be honest with you I'd just write these articles and send them off or I wasn't getting paid for them but they were getting printed and that's like a 15 year old lad I don't think they actually realised the editors of just how young I was that I was only this 15 year old schoolboy writing these letters uh, sorry writing these news articles about you know Bob has the world's tallest plant, you know, in his greenhouse. It wasn't anything terribly exciting, but it just kind of gave me the skills. And and you sort of touched on there writing and letters and stuff. You 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 work for newspapers, but why why do you think you've you've moved into broadcast particularly and and haven't stayed in print? Uh, I think for me, I always wanted to set to set out in broadcast. I thought that's where um, the excitement uh, and the, the excitement would be, and it would give me the opportunity to travel. Um, and so I always had that in my goal uh, to work. And I did start off freelancing for, for, for sport newspapers, actually. I used to be really involved in motorsport. So I got to know uh, a lot of the motorsport teams very well. Uh, and my dad would drive me around when I was a youngster and I would uh, sort of uh, go and report on rallies uh, and then file them for, uh, for national uh, motorsport magazines. And I would kind of get paid for that 15, 16. So it was great. So I actually, actually, when I went to university, I was doing radio uh, for BBC. And then by the time I left university, I'd already done sort of newspapers freelancing. I'd already done... Uh, radio, uh, freelancing for the BBC as a you know regular freelancer, as a presenter and a, and a reporter, and also a production assistant doing what you know you guys are doing now. And um, and so when I left, I was sort of ready for TV in a way. You know, I'd already sort of had a career by the time I'd sort of left university. Was it plain sailing for you, or, or what were the kind of challenges that you experienced? There's always challenges, and I think the, the the big challenge is persistence, really, and never giving up, and kind of believing in yourself, because it's one of those roles that no one's really asked for my GCSEs or A levels or what degree you got. And I don't think anybody in this day and age probably specifically gets asked for, you know, show me your GCSE papers or your degree. It doesn't happen. It all happens on that interview with the person, making connection with the the person's interviewing you, and actually just being really, really keen uh, and showing that you are capable of doing the job. And I think that's really important, really, particularly for. Uh, you know, in a day and age now, my children have got to hit these exams and the schools have, you know, 99% pass rate, you know, A star. Actually, that's great. You know, it might be great academically, but do they have the other skills as well, the persistence uh, to get on with it? I think in PR, uh, in journalism, I think everybody there has these sort of extra skills or soft skills, whatever term you want to call them, whereby you've got to get on with people. You've got to be passionate and enthusiastic uh, and get a job done. From there, then, you, you ended up at Central TV. Um, talk to us a bit about that. What was your role there? Well, yeah, so I, I, my first job really from university was in television was with West Country TV, which is now part of the ITV uh, system. Um, and I turned up. I just went round to have a look around the studio. Again, wrote, can I have a look around the studio? Uh, they, and the boss said at the end, a, a northern chap said, yeah, come and have a quick chat to me. And he put his feet on the desk and he, th- he said, are you good? Are you good? And I said, uh, yeah, I think I'm good. And I was thinking, what else should I say here? I can't say no. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I think I'm good. I said, but I am going to say that because, you know, the, you're kind of the boss's company and I want a job. And I was kind of quite open and honest about it by saying, of course I'm, I am good. And he went, yeah, I think you are good. He said, you know what? I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to pay you absolutely nothing, but it's up to you how, um, you know, how far you go uh, in, in this game, in TV. So do you fancy working in a place called Barnstable? I said, do you know where Barnstable is? Do you know what? I did not know where Barnstable was at that stage. <laughs> I went, yep. I went, okay, you're going to start there two weeks' time on Monday. 
so I actually left and looked at a map first of all and thought, where the hell's Barnstable? You know, um, and I ended up working there for sort of two years as a as a trainee sort of TV reporter, if you like. But it was great because um, you know there's more sheep than people in North Devon, uh, and actually. You know, trying to find stories in an area like that was pretty hard work. There was not the sophisticated, you know, PR agencies that you have, um, you know, in London and stuff. There was no real stories. So I had to literally go knocking on people's doors, making friends with the local police chief, the local head of the uh, Chamber of Commerce and the Rotary Club. It was proper old fashioned journalism, you know, and then going out for a couple of beers with people at night and trying to get stories that way. And, you know, I absolutely loved it. It was a great grounding because you went in with a blank sheet of paper. There's no prospects list. There was no you know, uh, diary uh, that uh, we're going to pick this story today. It was literally, okay, I've got to go and find something and had to fill six minutes of news every day. And that included a news VT uh, that was uh, two minutes long and then the rest of it was just little stories. And it came down to um, some times... Yeah, the, the cupboard was so dry, we'd have to just ring around the local cinemas and theatres and say, what's going on at your local cinema tonight? So the end of the news bulletin would be, and at uh, Barnstable Cinema tonight at six o'clock, we have uh, E.T. showing, you know, it wasn't E.T. or whatever, something <laughs> like that. Uh, but that was how desperate it was in those days, yeah. Working uh, in the sort of industry we do, we, d- we deal a lot with, with regional TV, especially with the certain stories that we, we cover. Um, it's, it's kind of an often underlooked or maybe overlooked um, piece of the broadcast landscape. It's kind of seen as somewhere where people kind of cut their teeth and stuff. What, what do you think the kind of significance is of particularly uh, regional TV? And I know ITV have got a, a sort of fantastic um, hub that they there's a lot of content showing that, that goes on. So at that kind of level, how, how important do you think regional TV is? Regional TV's got its place massively so, and particularly in this day and age where you know everything's so fragmented these days. I think people still like to know what's going on in their area. Uh, and in terms of sort of for PR companies, I think it's a, it's a goldmine really in terms of sort of pushing uh, stories to them. And obviously with the right angle, the right news uh, hook, etc., uh, and the right content, then you know it is a great place for PR companies to you know to sell their stories into. Um, it's not going to be easy. Obviously, the, the local ITV it needs to be a news and current affairs type of issue, but. But, but there is that avenue there because they are looking for for, for good content and and, and actually the, and they just don't want sort of crime stories all the time. You could fill a news bulletin with you know fires and crime and et cetera and stabbings, but you know everyone wants a bit more color these days and a bit more sort of content. So so for PR companies particularly, then you know if they package the story up right, they have you know good guests and they offer sort of case studies and these are all the things that I think everybody knows uh, but but it's still really really crucial to have that important toolkit of you know PR sort of toolkit and um, you know to offer a story to a PR company or to a newspaper or to a local radio station you know and resources are as you know very tight these days particularly in sort of the local media so to hand somebody a story not necessarily on a plate obviously the journalists are going to go away and put a, their own spin their own take on it but uh, but there's a big role for for PR companies these days definitely um, and you touched on it there, the kind of the way that budgets have been squeezed slightly. Um, do you, in your in your current job now, do you, do you kind of re- rely on regional crews quite often to help you out with with content? Uh, we do, yeah. I mean, we're part of the ITV network, and actually, the, our tagline now is One ITV, and it, and it really is the you know, the case of um, that we do all work together. Uh, but everybody still likes their own individual content, so you still like to have your reporter at the place where the story is. Uh, so you're always going to send, you know two or three crews there from ITV to the same story because everyone has their own outlets to serve. So um, so that's what, you know, people kind of forget about. But, I mean, it's still well-funded, uh, uh, you know, particularly ITV at sort of a, a national level. Uh, and if there's good stories there, then, you know, then ITV will obviously deploy. 
so mentioned obviously regional TV and and the, the 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 bloke that took a chance on you. Did you have any sort of mentors or inspirational figures when you were kind of working through? Well, it's it's pretty hard actually when you you know you come from university and your first job is being on on TV. So I did rely on him, definitely the sort of boss. Um, but I just had in the back of his head, he said, "I'm going to take a chance on you. I think you're good. You know, I think you're quite a sort of a aggressive journalist," is what he said at the time. I don't know how because he only interviewed me for four, five minutes. So I had that kind of. Th- I didn't actually want to let him down. I thought this guy's taking a chance on me. I've got to sort of prove. And I remember sort of, you know, you'd stay very late. You'd stay to the last person has left the story. Um, you know, you'd be at a local fire and you'd wait until every flame was out before you sort of felt as if you could sort of leave. Um, and that's just kind of a good sort of work ethic to kind of have. I still probably have it now when I'm you know uh, out and about uh, on stories uh, so I think you've just got to work hard is the main thing but in terms of mentors I mean my dad really is probably the most important guy in my life in terms of uh, from work perspective uh, you know watching him sort of commentate on local football matches and he, you know the advice that he gave me was just to you know never to put off things you know do things now don't put them off until tomorrow uh, just kind of get things done uh, and he always gave me kind of quite honest advice you know as if he thought I was pretty crap he'd tell me so and you know what now and again I you know I still phone him up sometimes and I can be abroad on a big story and and he'll say yeah yeah it looked all right that was great but actually don't quite like what you said here you know and I'm still getting it he's 83 years old now um, so I'm still kind of trying to get his uh, validation his kind of acceptance or his approval if you like you know even even at this Stage. So from Central, where did you go? Well, from Central TV, uh, it was West Country, then it was Central TV, uh, and then that was based in Abingdon, so the demographic there is a little bit more different. Uh, it was probably um, probably a bit more well-to-do sort of audience, if you like, so it was a bit more serious in terms of the, the news uh, that we did that. But while I was working at Central TV, I was also freelancing at ITN at the time, because so I really wanted to sort of become a national TV correspondent. So for a couple of years, alongside working at Central TV, I was, uh, and I was presenting on Central TV as well, uh, presenting the evening show as well, and that was in the age of 26 or something, um, and then freelancing at ITN, so uh, desperately trying to get a job uh, as an ITN correspondent. And then the opportunity came along uh, to work for GMTV at the time, uh, and I really liked the style of what GMTV did. It was a lot of the correspondents were out on the story, uh, but there's a lot of camera movements. You know, you were kind of involved in the story. You weren't this reporter, you know, just standing at the edge of a story or periphery, looking in at it. You were actually in it. You know, you were in the water, in the waders, you're in the snow, you were in somebody's house that had just been, you know, destroyed in a lightning attack, etc. And you're walking around showing the viewer, you know, and it's called, you know, show and tell, a walkie-talkie. And it's, you know, we don't do a lot of that these days. Things have changed because the programme's changed. But, you know, I used to absolutely love those days. And we may as well get into it in terms of how, talk to us about GMB then. What's life like at GMB, kind of day-to-day, um, the day-to-day role? Well, it's different. I mean, we've got Piers Morgan now, as you know, he's a presenter and Susanna Reid there and uh, Charlotte. But Piers, you know, he's a, uh, you know, we all know what he's like. He's got his own opinions and he airs them uh, every day on Good Morning Britain or every day, Monday to Wednesday. And he does a short week. He obviously has, needs to lie down Thursday, Friday. Uh, but, yeah, look, he knows what he's doing. He knows TV. He knows journalism. He knows he's got, a, you know, the, one of the biggest contact books that, that I know of. You know, he knows literally everybody from prime ministers to, to showbiz to sports stars. Uh, and actually, you know, he's a really nice guy with it, too. You know, I really enjoy his company. We've been, you know, for beers, Christmas lunches together. You know, he really is a top guy. And he knows that what he's doing, he is sort of pressing people's buttons. He's trying to get a reaction. He's trying to get a debate going because, you know, everyone news agenda these days it, we just move on so quickly you know there's, there's news stories used to hang around for two or three days in the past before now and the disaster can happen and bang the next day we're all onto something else whereas Piers is good at just pro- getting people's opinions and 
you know, probably for too long as well in terms of all journalists. You know, we have, we, we, it's difficult for us because we're news correspondents. You, you know, you, you can't necessarily have an opinion and say, you know, I vote for this person. Obviously, you wouldn't say that, but or I think X, Y, and Z should happen. But you, as a correspondent, I see it as my role to give an impression, to interpret a story for the viewer. If you are in a disaster zone, um, somewhere and you know you're seeing awful things you want to tell the viewer that you know and actually speak as a father and a, and a, and a son you know and obviously as a correspondent as well and give some kind of emotion across and I think that responds well to viewers and I think you know what Piers does is a similar version of that you know he gets people going uh, but he's very good at it you know I mean you you know you listen to what he says he's actually very fair when he's interviewing because people might say he's got this opinion he's got that opinion well, actually, he does have an opinion, but he's you know he's actually on the side of common sense, isn't he? He's kind of he's reflecting what the viewers at home are thinking, and you know, and the viewing figures reflect that they like what they see. Obviously, touching on the presenters there, it, it is a show that is very dominated by the presenters. Does that sometimes make it difficult as a reporter or correspondent on the show? <laughs> You've obviously been watching <laughs> because no, it, it massively does. I mean, we used to have you know we have less airtime now because obviously Piers doesn't shut up. You know, he likes the sound of his own voice, and it's his show, and uh, uh, and and he and he carries on. You know, and uh, and so it does have an impact on everything else that's going on. Um, and the news, you know, we kind of fight to sort of keep news on on the show. Um, if he's involved in a debate, you know, he'll carry on kind of, um, you know, carry on talking. But that's the nature of it. And we've just sort of all adapted, really. And the news is a crucial part of, uh, you know, breakfast TV. People want to wake up to know that the world is still turning, you know, essentially. And they want to find out what the, what's happening with the weather. Should they wear a coat? You know, should it be a brolly sort of day? And they want to find out a bit of showbiz and have a bit of a laugh as well. And I think that's what breakfast TV does. I think we're you know, incredibly good at doing that. But in terms of us, yeah, we kind of, um, we, I think it, it's raised our game. Everyone has to be good at what they do. You know, Piers has come in and shaken things up and we have to make sure that we're at the top of our game, really. Um, and what we say, you know, is correct, it's factual, it's entertaining, it's punchy, uh, you know, and it gets the, it gets the point across. How have you sort of seen the show change, do you think, over the years? What are the kind of big changes that you've seen? Is, it, is that mainly down to the presenters or has, has the kind of broadcast landscape changed and you've had to adapt with it? Yeah, I think, no, I mean, technology-wise, there's lots of areas here. The presenters obviously changed the show, uh, but that's, you know, that's easy, you know, in a given, you can sort of see that on air. Uh, but also technology behind the scenes, you know, I mean, obviously the camera equipment is a lot smaller now. We've got something called Live View, uh, which is basically just the size of a, you know, it's not much bigger than a mobile phone and we can broadcast anywhere in the world with that. You know, it just comes in a small little bag. Uh, we just clip it onto your belt effectively uh, so there's long you know we don't need satellite trucks anymore we don't need big crews we don't need to book lines we used to drive our tape into into studios from one side of the city to another all of those kind of days are gone you know i can actually broadcast on my mobile phone and i have if a, if a disaster or story breaks uh, so there's that side of things as well and also there's the news agenda side of things i mean you know people in pr will know that stories just don't hang around for very long these days um you know stories used to have longevity of you know two or three days or certainly a week you might get a one big news story you know it might last for two days now a big disaster I mean, look at the terror attacks the other week in, in london you know i mean horrific horrific stories you know um and, you know it affects so many people's lives but but you know, you know two or three days and then you know, we're all talking back to brexit again talk to us a bit about your kind of working week because it's, it's it's not a sort of normal nine to five how how do you how do you sort of what to work it's um, not. I mean, last week, for example, I was doing a story in London. Again, it was a political story in in Westminster on uh, Wednesday, and then um, 
obviously when you're getting back in the afternoon you're ready for something else I was actually watching my daughter's sort of Christmas uh, concert at sort of nine o'clock at night and the call came to go to Paris so okay and I had to drive to Paris because there was airline strikes uh, happening and big protests happening so the safest way to kind of ensure I got there was to drive so then it's literally sneaking out of a production uh, getting into the car obviously you've got passport with us stuff is in the car all the kit and then you're dra racing to get the last uh euro tunnel which was just after 11 o'clock had i not got that i wouldn't have got to you know paris on time so you know racing you just catch that that's tick okay i've got the ferry uh, the, the euro tunnel fantastic and then you've got this awful drive then you know in the middle of the night when it's freezing fog couldn't see a thing you get into paris at uh, got that 4 30 into the hotel which we use all the time we become regulars there's ah oh, mr jonathan how are you you know how are you and it's like <laughs> on first name terms with concierges around the world and that goes to show just how often we use these kind of hotels and yeah quick shower and a shave and whatever and get your head around the story and then you're live out on the champs Elysees with the art of triumph as a backdrop talking about a day of protests ahead uh, in paris you know so that was a kind of 24-hour day really uh, and then it didn't really stop from them quick breakfast and then you're out filming you know, I was out uh, being tear gassed uh, with the police, not personally attacking me, I don't think. I think it's protesters, hopefully. But, uh, but yeah, you spend the day in, you know, um, yeah, filming in Paris. And then, you, you know, you, and, uh, and suddenly, you know, you're yeah, in the middle of a massive protest. It's not the Paris that you all know. It's an ugly side of Paris because there was protests and, and it got really violent pretty quickly. Uh, so that's you know we've been trained for these for these uh, scenarios. You know we've gone uh, training courses with all ex special forces types and military types when they kidnap us and um, it is mock kidnapping I have to say, but it feels pretty realistic at the time. Uh, so you kind of get trained for it, but uh, again you suddenly just have to find yourself. You know one minute you're in a in a in a, in a school watching your daughter Christmas play, next minute you know you so say you've been tear gassed in the centre of Paris. So it's fun <laughs> <laughs> and how, how do you sort of cope with that in terms of um kind of feel like a doctor like you're always on call um anything can happen you do or, yeah you feel like you're on call and a good way you know because i've been here such a long time people kind of say how do you kind of cope with that friend so i can never cope with being on call the whole time but you just have to kind of you just accept it for what it is really and you kind of know the news agenda you know breaking news can happen on think okay we're not going to send to that story you know there's a, an earthquake just happened today in uh, in new zealand but they're not going to send there it's going to take three days to get there and it'll all be over by the time you get there so um so you're kind of good at kind of spotting the news agenda what's going to make a story particularly for us the following day uh, and also just making the most of the downtime too, having lots of other activities outside work that just makes you can just sort of switch off, but and um, and you know not take yourself not take yourself too seriously is the main thing. And I think it's something that's often overlooked by people uh, who kind of w watch the show or, or maybe listen to kind of early morning radio. That obviously you start very early in the morning, uh, that the show goes live, but you have to be up even earlier than that. How do you deal with the sort of early mornings and, and the kind of work-life balance? Yeah, struggle. Even now the alarm clock goes off and it's like, Christ, it's like 10 to 3 in the morning. Where am I going now? You know, um, and it, yeah, it can be early, you know, 10 to 3, 3, half 3, you know, like Paris, for example. I had literally 40 minutes in bed and then I got up to do my lives after driving there. Uh, but you kind of, do you know, the, the alarm goes off initially and then first of all you wake up thinking, OK, where am I? You know, I'm in the hotel room, I'm here, I'm there. Um, so I was in Japan for three weeks covering the World Cup and we're moving around lots of hotels. So I was waking up there at all sorts of hours. Um, and it, but actually the adrenaline then kicks in. You suddenly kind of go, OK, right, I've got to be, you know, I've got a two-hour drive to get to the live location. Uh, and obviously it doesn't leave a lot to chance. It literally is a quick shower and whatever and get out and the drive and you get there and you've got to get your head across the story. Often I'll have to pull over at the side of the road, you know, to write a script as well. So that news VT you see is written by us, um, you know, in a lay-by somewhere. Um, 
So there's quite a lot to do. It's really intense sort of moment of, you know, we don't do sort of 10 hour shifts, you know, in an office, you know, like probably most people, but it's just quite an intense uh, few hours, you know, getting on air and, you know, organising the crew, writing the story, getting your head around the story. Then, of course, you've got the Piers Morgan factor, you know, you've got him questioning you if you are top story. And he will, you know, the question might say, Jonathan, what is the latest where you are? And he will come at it, you know, from the left field, the right field, you know, from wherever. And, uh, and you've just got to be make sure you are across your story because he could ask you anything, you know. You mentioned there in terms of stories. What, what, what would you say is the most challenging story that you've, you've been involved in? I mean, the obvious one to say probably springs to my office. I've done war zones. I was in Iraq in 2003. I've been in Afghanistan. Uh, I've been in terrorism incidents around the world. I was shot at in Ukraine when there was an uprising there a few years ago. And there were sort of, you know, allegedly Russian snipers in the, you know, in the crowd uh, taking pot shots at protesters. I mean, that's pretty horrific. And I saw people that day, you know, literally dropping down dead around me. They were shot in the chest and the head and they were literally five to 10 meters or so away from me and you know and i learned a lot from that day because we were about to i, I thought it was quite a benign situation even though it's a protest uh, it was seven o'clock in the morning uh, i was with a cameraman we didn't have any body armor on us at all i thought it was it was okay i thought the police were about to go in and clear the area um and it was just kind of a bad call uh, wrong place wrong time you know luckily touch wood we're here uh, but um yeah, I just kind of thought it was about to be, it was about to, uh, things were about to get better. The police were about to go in and sort of dis- disperse the crowd. Actually, what it was, was, uh, you know, it actually kicked off in a big way. And you just don't know in these situations when you go abroad who who's around. You know, there was, say, Russian, Russian Special Forces around, apparently. There's you know Ukrainian army there. There's protesters sort of there. Um, you know, and as it was, that it kicked off very quickly. And um, we ran into the hotel carrying our kits. To this to this day, I don't know why we picked up our kits. We ran like it was a stretcher. My cameraman was one end of it. I was the other end of it. We threw it onto our rucksack. We legged in, and there was literally just bullets bouncing off around us. I kid you not. It's like a, I'm not exaggerating. And um, and yeah, we, we were held up in the hotel then for for a few hours, and it became a, a morgue. You know, down below there was um. These protesters, 60 protesters got shot. The reception that we checked in a few hours ago was now a morgue with 60 bodies lying there with bullet holes and became a, a triage place with people having first aid. So you do see a lot in this job and you have to just, you know, just uh, brush that off and get on with it. And Sorry, that went a bit heavy then. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fine. I mean, it's, it's, it's good to highlight the, sort of the, the, the challenges and the situations that you can find yourself into. Um, have you, I mean, what, what would you say is your kind of standout moment that you've, you've had? Uh, there's been a lot of standout moments, but I love my sport. So I was in the Rugby World Cup recently in Japan. I was at the Football World Cup uh, in Russia last year. I mean, they're kind of, you know, pretty amazing moments when you kind of get paid to, to watch these amazing World Cup matches. Um, then you get to you know, see the players afterwards. We were in the England team, football team hotel uh, in the Russia World Cup and we're with a lot of the England rugby team uh, now. So that for me personally, as a person that likes sport, enjoys sports and rugby coach as well uh, for, for, you know, my son's team on a Sunday. So that was just fantastic being around those guys. And as you say, never meet your heroes, you know, like big fan of the rugby guys, but they were just fantastic fellas, you know, um, really top blokes. So that was, that was great for me. Um, and in terms of kind of recent, recent stories that we may have seen, um, particularly the largest one recently was probably Grenfell. How, how did you kind of cover that and, um, and, and how did you address that situation, really? Yeah, really interesting one. Horrific story, Grenfell uh, fire, of course. Uh, so many people lost their lives. Um, but when I was, we got the call, actually, about sort of two o'clock in the morning saying there's been a, you know, it looks like a, a fire at a, at a tower block in London. Let's go and check it out. 
So we drove to check it out. And I was actually there at sort of about two o'clock in the morning when it, the flames were pretty much at its height, actually. And even then, as soon as you, you just, as I said, you have that instinct, you can just turn up and just know that this is just a horrific fire. You know, there's going to be a lot of lives lost here. Um, and I saw the panic in the, in the emergency services that were around. I mean, it did a great job, but they're just turning up. They're humans like us. Um, and then it's a case of, you know, switching on into that sort of reporter mode and thinking, OK, how best can we can we cover this story? And the locals around there were, were lovely, actually. They, they allowed us to get into their their, their flats uh, and we used um, somebody's sort of roof garden, basically, as, a, as an access point. And a, so we could sort of film what was going on. And at the time, you know, we... You also have to sort of, you know, realise that you're there doing a job, but there's also a real tragedy unfolding. So we were helping the local people, you know, get stuff or get organising. You know, I had sort of coffees and drinks and food that were handing out to the fire crews, actually. I mean, they'd just turned up in the middle of the night and they were exhausted. And, you know, so we were just trying to do as much as they can. And just local people helping us too, giving us batteries. In fact, my phone was dead, as you can imagine, uh, on a day like that. So they're handing over their portable battery packs. I mean, just... Horrific story, but behind the scenes, there was a lot of good, you know, people were really helping out. Is it is it hard to kind of separate uh, sometimes when you're in something so, so terrible like that? Is it quite hard to separate actually job and being a, well, just a, a human in those situations? I think actually the best reporters, the ones, you know, that a day like today, that day uh, is just, you know, you just, you are you're a person so your dad you're you know a husband whatever and you're a tv reporter and you just give the emotion of what you are seeing that day you know i don't sort of you know i don't act at being a tv reporter you know i mean it's a case of you know your job there and as a correspondent your job is to sort of say interpret the story and tell people what you are seeing that moment you know so and i think you've got to be as honest as you can and if you feel upset by something and uh, you know, and and sort of say it i think i did that day you know um, i was actually right at the bottom of these closest to the uh, the tower part as we could be, possibly be, but right at the foot of it, at the bottom. Uh, so we had all the uh, the debris, you know, it was burning, and the, as we know, it was the uh, the panels, you know, they were sort of still in flames, sort of falling all around us. Um, and we were with sort of locals watching. You had family members trapped uh, inside. So, yeah, it was just, uh, and actually, hopefully trying to do, you know, trying to alert the emergency services as well. We were spotting people, you know, waving flags, um, and trying to get the attention of the fire crews. So, you know, part of the job was off air, was to run to the fire crews and say, look, have you seen this person here? I'm sure they might have seen that person, but just in case, you know, we're there, we've got a good line of sight. You know, it's actually trying to do as much good as you can as well. What do you think has kept you at, at Good Morning Britain for so many years? I think the variety, really, you know, I mean, it can be, it is so different, as we talked about, just touched on a few stories there. Um, you know, no day is different. Uh, no day is the same. And you, and actually, you feel that, you know, you're telling a story, you know, which is fantastic. You know, you're sort of a storyteller, really, as a sort of correspondent. And therefore, you know, it's a great job, isn't it? To, people wake up in the morning and, you know, you're there somewhere in Paris, could be Japan and Russia, America, wherever, or, you know, a Grenfell or, or in the UK, we're doing politics this week, the election's coming up. You know, so you're actually, you're, you're, you're covering stories that people generally are talking about day to day in their lives. You know, most people are kind of going to their office and just getting on with their accountancy or whatever they have to do. Uh, but, you know, we're there sort of chatting about stuff that is on the front pages of newspapers that, you know, actually has an impact on people's lives. You know, I think that's that's pretty important, pretty special. And in terms of what we're working on at the minute, what, what what's coming up or what's next? I will just talk about that B word if I can, because what that's done almost is just sort of it's actually possibly killed other stories getting on air. I don't know from a PR point of view whether, you know, PR companies and 
are perhaps struggling to get stuff out there because Brexit is just sort of dominating everything, you know, 24 hours a day. And all right, most people, I think, you know, like all of us, have probably had enough of it all, uh, but it is a big story and you have to kind of cover it. The nuances of the story are getting so detailed now. Um, I just don't know whether it's whether it's penetrating to people at home, you know, reading stuff, you know, people are kind of switching off from it. And, and I probably think from a PR point of view, is that probably having an impact on getting stories out there? Because stories that perhaps used to be, you know, on TV or in the media are getting squashed by this, you know, two or three pages of new coverage to, to, to Brexit every day. Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it, it's an obvious, obvious challenge to, uh, to PRs. Um, Specifically, the broadcast landscape as well. Um, I think we'll just finish up on really from the with my PR hat on. Um, from your point of view, what's what's the kind of benefit that you feel um, PRs give you, and any kind of tips that you can give um, give people to 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 make their lives easier? Sure, I was kind of like the sort of face to face contact with PRs. Really, I know that that's probably not how many journalists sort of think. But I actually, if you know, if there's a, if there is a good story that has been, you know brought across our desk um it's great to have a phone conversation with them and often in the past you know i've worked kind of with them to try and make the story you know perhaps more suitable for a broadcast audience i think that's kind of really uh, important as well um because i think it must be very hard for prs just you know they don't really know what's going on behind the scenes every day in a newsroom what the agenda is you know what is particularly a hot topic at, you know for a certain program at a certain time whether it be tv radio um so I think it's good just to kind of actually have that face-to-face contact with a journalist and actually work with them. You know, sometimes it does get annoying when you get PR that kind of say, okay, this is, this is what we've got, bang, you know, on the desk. And, and there's no sort of flexibility there. You want to sort of say, well, actually, do you know what, maybe that guest is great, but if the, we'd actually like to do them live as opposed to, um, you know, pre-recorded. I mean, particularly for a show like ours, it is, it's live and, you know, people want to see the whites of people's eyes, they want that interaction with the presenters or the correspondent. So, you know, making people sort of available to suit, to, to fit that certain programme, whether it be you know, one Britain or, you know, on, on the radio, for example, BBC, whatever, um, but making people available, uh, I, I'd say is key. And also just how, I mean, this is sucking eggs, but actually just making sure there's kind of a news angle to it as well. It, you know, it doesn't have to be a new story. We get that, but just it needs to sort of mirror the kind of um, the news agenda of the moment. So, you know, there's no point, you know, global, obviously, you know, Everyone's really aware of the environment at the moment, and quite rightly. So now is a great time to be you know, pushing those environmental uh, stories. Finally, what, what's, what kind of story are you specifically looking for at the minute? Is there anything, or is it, is it more just predominantly dominated by the uh, sort of news agenda? Well, it is. There's no one specific story for our particular show. It is whatever is making news at that moment. Uh, and, you know, the main protagonist of the news, you know, uh, we had Auntie Joshua sort of on you know, TV today. Joshua just won the, the World Heavyweight Championship at the weekend. So it's kind of just getting those people that are relevant to the news agenda, you know. Um, and there are so many sort of stories uh, that are out there uh, that aren't to do with Brexit that perhaps haven't had a look in. But I think it's a, uh, it's a great idea, you know, just to try and um, push as many uh, stories out there as you can. Thank you very much for joining us, Jonathan. You're welcome. I enjoyed it. That was Good Morning Britain's Jonathan Swain talking to Arthur Perkins from Shout Communications.